Hi, this is Chris Sorensen. Welcome to Brookville Road Community Church Podcast. If you haven't done so already, please take a moment to check out our website at brookvilleroad.cc for all the latest information about what's going on at Community Church. I hope the following message inspires you to take your next step in becoming a wholehearted follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. Well, it's good to be with all of you today. My name is Andy Flank, and I'm on staff. And today we're continuing a series in the book of 1 John that Pastor Chris kicked off a few weeks ago. It's called Abide, and uh, we just got to hear 1 John 1 read. And today we're going to be focusing in on the end of the chapter, verses 5 through 10. But before I really get going into my my message, I just want to mention that I have an announcement and some good news uh, especially for some of you, and that is we're getting closer to be able to be, to be able to bring back coffee to church. So that's a that's a good thing. And I mention this because we are also looking for more volunteers who would be willing to help serve coffee so that we can do that. And if you would be interested in signing up to, to serve in some way, if you'll go and see Janice Britson, she oversees that area of ministry and she's back in the Welcome Center. So you can do that after the service. Now, if you were here last week, you know that Pastor Chris actually already kind of did a sermon on the back half of 1 John chapter 1. We, he talked about sin and the significance of sin. And he asked us to consider a, a question. What are we going to do with our sin? And he proposed that there are kind of two main things that we can do. We can either deny our sin or we can deal with our sin. And so today I actually want to build on his message and talk in more detail about how we should deal with our sin. Today we're going to talk about an important idea in the Christian faith. We're going to talk about confession and what it means for us to make a real confession before God. Now as we go through 1 John 1, 5 through 10, we're going to see what it takes for us to make a real confession. But as we talk about this topic, it seems to me that John is talking to three categories of people in this particular section of scripture. When it comes to confession, I think he's talking to people who either deny their need for confession, people who are making what we might call a fake confession, or people who make a real confession, a sincere confession. So we're going to look at each of these three groups, starting with the group that we see in verses 8 and 10. And so it says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then skipping down, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him, that's God, out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. I think what basically John is saying is that there are people in our world who don't think they have a problem with sin. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole long time on this particular group of people. I think Pastor Chris has addressed them in previous weeks. But I do want to point out something about this particular group that I think is very interesting. Although many in our society think of concepts like sin and guilt of They think of those as like almost like relics of a bygone era, back when more people went to church and religion was more prominent in our country. But like we don't have those things now because there is no sort of absolute set of moral standards, what's right and wrong. You know, Christianity is is not as dominant as it once was in our country. and, And so we don't really have those things anymore. But the reality is that just because we are somehow enlightened, it doesn't mean that people don't struggle with feelings of guilt and condemnation. It doesn't mean that people don't have a sense that there's something wrong. And if it's not wrong with, with just me, it, it must be something that, that's bigger. And then they're kind of looking for that. 
I think we see a bit of this in the writings of one of the leading novelists of the 20th century, a Bohemian author named Franz Kafka. Now, in his book, The Trial, I don't know, maybe you were assigned to read that in in high school English class or literature, uh, maybe in college, but in, in the book, The Trial, Kafka tells the story of a man named Yosef who is arrested and persecuted by a kind of mysterious agency of some sort. Now, if you've read The Trial, you know that the kind of interesting and confusing, eventually it becomes kind of an absurd thing, is that Yosef, uh, even after he's arrested and, and there's a kind of this initial hearing, no one ever tells him what crimes he, he committed. It's just sort of, there's these insinuations that he knows he did something wrong. There's kind of an implied thing that he, he was immoral in some way, but no one ever actually confronts him and notifies him, this is what you did that was wrong. So Yosef, after this initial hearing, is told, eventually there's going to be this trial. And that's what we're waiting for throughout the whole book. But they said, for right now, you're free to go. You're free to live your normal life. But even though he's technically free, Yosef certainly does not feel free. As he tries to go through his everyday routine, he keeps encountering judges and lawyers and witnesses and police officers. And he, he just has this sense that they're all accusing him. He, he's struggling because there's no courthouse. There's no formal courthouse, but they just keep showing up. There's one in an attic and then there's like another in just like sort of this warehouse area. And as he's going through, like having all these experiences, he's just wondering, what is happening to me? What did I do? Who is accusing me? He desperately wants to defend himself. But because this shadowy agency is so secretive, he doesn't know where to go. He doesn't even know who he would talk to. It turns out that even though he never has a formal trial, his whole life becomes a kind of trial. And the reason I think that this book, The Trial by Kafka, is so interesting is that even though he's not a Christian, I think he has a great perspective on our modern era. And from a Christian point of view, we can kind of say, yeah, that, that these are the problems you would have because in our world... People want to know who is accusing us. Why is it that I have these feelings? Why do I feel guilty? After Kafka died, his diary was published. And one of the lines in his diary really stands out to me. It says, the state we find ourselves in is sinful, quite independent of guilt. So so he's kind of saying, look, there there is no absolute standard that would make me sinful and, and, and guilty But like we feel that we are. Tim Keller has written about what Kafka wrote by saying, people don't believe in sin. They don't believe in hell. They don't believe in judgment. And yet they walk around with a sense of condemnation, which they cannot shake. Now, for people in this group, people who believe that there is no need for them uh, to make a confession. What do we do with those feelings? If you're in that category. As a society, what do we do when we don't believe that Satan is the accuser, but somehow we still feel accused? What do we do when we don't believe that God is the judge, and yet we still feel condemned? We have this sense that something is wrong. But again, if there's no absolute moral standard, it's really hard to say that an individual is wrong or has done something bad. And so we're looking for these shadowy institutions, these systems. It's the, in the government, the, the educational system, corporations and conglomerates. So, somehow we know that there's a problem, but we don't exactly know where to go to solve it. And so there's a lot of accusations at each other. But... Even if we're kind of stuck and we're in this place where like, 
I don't believe in confession. I don't think I need to do it. Like, if, if, if I just consider that I don't really know to go with all of this, this sense that something's wrong and something needs to be done, but I, I don't know how to deal with this problem. Perhaps, if you're in this category, you might consider, well, well maybe the feelings that you have, that feeling of guilt, something that you're haunted by your past, something that you can't quite specify, but you know something is wrong on the inside of you, perhaps... That's an indicator that John was right. When the things he was writing about, that there really is a God in heaven and someday he will be our judge. And perhaps it will lead us to a place where we can take a step of faith and say, I'm gonna go before that judge. I'm gonna come before God and take my sin and my feelings and just ask for help to make a confession, to admit that, I was wrong. Now, later in my message, we're going to talk about what a real confession looks like, and we're even going to take some time to make one. But before we get to that, talking about a real confession to God, let's contrast that with what we might call a fake confession. People who make what I'm calling a fake confession, people in this category are making a confession that tries to take advantage of God's forgiveness without actually committing to repent of their sins. That's what makes fake forgiveness fake. It's not that a person doesn't feel sorry. And it's not that a person doesn't believe in God. It's not that they don't feel bad about what they did. It's just that they don't believe in repentance. They don't believe in making a change. Real confession always involves repentance. In verse 6, John writes, If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. I think John is identifying that there are people in this world. And we have to recognize, I mean, it's not like John wrote this letter just broadly to the whole world. He he must think that there are people in the church who fit this category. So John is saying that there are people in the world. There are people in the church who claim to have a relationship with God. That is, they claim to be walking in the light. But he says there's something fake about them. They're actually walking in the darkness. Now, here's the thing. In my opinion, the difference between people walking in the light and people walking in the darkness isn't that people walking in the light are never sinning and the people who are walking in darkness are. In verse 8, we looked at it earlier. In verse 8, John wrote, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So it can't be that the difference between the people in the light and the people in the darkness is moral perfection because both of these groups apparently struggle with sin. I think the difference between the fake confession people walking in the dark and the real confession people walking in the light is their attitude towards confession and what they believe it accomplishes because a real confession focuses on our relationship with God and what's going on between us while a fake confession focuses on us And what's going on, we might say, not in a relationship between us and God, but a transaction between us and God. A fake confession is focused on us and how we feel, but a real confession is focused on God and how he feels about our sin. Now, when I say that fake confessions are focused on us and how we feel, what I'm getting at is that for us, a fake confession It's primarily rooted in the bad feelings that we have when we violate God's laws and standards, right? It's not about that I like somehow grieved God's heart with my behavior. It's a recognition that like 
I broke some of God's standards. I violated some of his laws. And in my conscience, I don't like how that makes me feel. And so I need to ask for forgiveness and make a confession. Because what I want to have happen is that, I don't know, there's this transaction, this like mysterious ledger that exists between me and God. And when I say the magic words and ask for forgiveness on the ledger, my debit, that was my sin, somehow God just erases it and it's gone. And I, I, I like that. I, I don't want to have that hanging over my head. And so I, after I confess, I feel good. And I continue to feel good. My conscience continues to feel clear until I sin enough in the future. And then I have to do it again. So a fake confession is focused on this transactional relationship, eliminating the debit that I have in God's account. But here's the thing. Andy Stanley has pointed out that for some reason... We have gotten this idea that confession is primarily about guilt relief. We, we think that confession is about clearing our conscience. But he says that if you actually look in God's word, if you get into the scriptures, if you do a word study on the word confess or the word confession, you'll see that unless you do some real mental and theological gymnastics, there is no passage in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. There's no instance that brings the idea of confession and our conscience together. It's just not there. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that there's no connection or no relationship between our confession and our conscience. I'm just saying that biblically, real confession has never about been about making our conscience feel better. Okay, that's, that's not what's going on. Real confession always involves repentance. Repentance always involves making a change in our behavior. So that's why we can say real confession leads to real change. That's an idea we're going to keep coming back to for the rest of this message. Real confession leads to real change. See, it isn't just about acknowledging that I did something wrong. It's about saying I'm going to do something different, something that's going to please God. Many years ago, my wife Becky and I were coaching a girls travel soccer team. It was a bunch of 11-year-olds, and there was one player on the team who was just a particular know-it-all. Like, she never did anything wrong in her mind, and she always kind of knew the game better than all of her teammates and even her coaches. And so I would pull her aside, and I would say, hey, here's what happened. Did you see what happened out there when we lost the ball or, you know, the other team scored a goal or whatever was going on? And I would say, did you see that happen? Yeah. I said, okay, so here's what mistakes were made, and here's what you need to do uh, to, to fix it. Like, you can change these things. Do you understand what I'm talking about? I know, coach. She would always say the same thing. I know, coach. And then she would go out there, and there would be absolutely no change, right? Like, I would tell her what to do. I know, coach. Go right back out there. No change. So one day, I pulled her out over uh, just to the side during practice, and I just said, hey, I am having a lot of trouble coaching you. And I was trying to be as gentle as I could, but I was just trying to clear, be clear. I said, I'm having a lot of trouble coaching you. Because it seems like you think that you, you know everything about soccer. And I said, I'm just here to try to help you get better. So, so let's work together. I said, so, so when I tell you to do something, you always say the same thing. You always say, I know coach. And then like, you don't do what I say. So what I would like for you to work on is when I give you instructions, actually do what I say. Okay. Can, can, can you do that? She looked at me. I could tell she was really thinking about what I said. And then without any hint of irony at all, she said, I know, coach, and ran back on the field. No, no change. No change. 
fake confession say to our Heavenly Father, I know, God, I know. And then we just go back to doing what we've done before. That's we sin, but there's no change. Again, it's just like, I'll say the magic words and my debt will be canceled, but I'm not that concerned about the relationship. But that's what real confession is about. It's about our relationship that focuses on God and moving in his direction. Fake confessions focus on how I feel about my sin, but real confessions focus on God and how he feels about my sin. I think it's this distinction that Tim Keller was referring to when he wrote, legalistic remorse says, I broke God's rules. While real repentance says, I broke God's heart. I love that. This is what I'm trying to get at. It's the difference between I broke God's rules and I broke God's heart. Ultimately, real confession will inevitably lead to real change. Because confession isn't just a theological idea. It is something that all of us as Christians, if we're going to be wholehearted followers of Jesus, we have to understand it and put it into practice. We can't just know about confession. We have to actually do it. And because I think that that's so important, not just know about it, but actually do it. I'm going to take the remainder of my message to try to give you some practical suggestions for how we can make a real confession. The kind of confession that John was talking about in 1 John 1, 9, when he said, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Last week, Pastor Chris encouraged us to to memorize that verse. And I just want to like co-sign on that. This is a verse that I memorized when I was growing up, and it is a verse I have come back to on so many occasions. You will be blessed if you memorize that verse. It really will be an encouragement to you. So if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Here's the thing. As we move past just being focused on how our sins make us feel and what is going on in our conscience and begin to focus on God's heart and how our sins affect our relationship with him, it's going to lead us to a point where we'll make a real confession that leads to real change. Now, there are lots of ways that you can make a real and sincere confession. I'm just going to share with you uh, five steps that have helped me. These are things that I picked up from John Ortberg many years ago and have been a blessing to me and uh, something you can try in, in your own life. So we're going to talk about these five steps. And then at the end of this, I'm going to give you some time to actually make your own confession to God. The first step is to admit your sin. Acknowledge your sin. Admit it. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have to acknowledge our sin. We have to admit our sin. Because the truth is, God already knows what we did. Right? It's not like when you're confessing your sins, you're down on your knees and you're praying. God is like, I had no idea. That was you. I didn't know. As my brother and I have gotten older, there are moments where we share with mom and dad things that happened a long time ago. Like, you know, statue of limitations is over and we surprise mom and dad with some things that we did, but that's not how it works with God. He already knows what we did. He knows that we're sinners. We're all sinners. The question is, will we admit what we have done? Right now, my daughter Lottie is going through a stage where when we tell her something is off limits, we go to it and we like, we'll point at it and we'll say, Lottie, that's a no-no. She'll look at it, very serious. No, no. No, no, no. But just because she knows something is a no-no doesn't mean that she's not going to do the no-no. For instance, in our family, Lottie is not allowed to use markers unless she's being helped by a grown-up. 
But on several occasions, we've come into the kitchen and found Lottie using markers and not on a piece of paper or in a coloring book like the other kids are doing, just right on the wall, right? You know, like we came in, Becky and I, this is, this is not an exaggeration. We came in and she was just coloring on the wall with a marker. And the whole time, this is what she's saying. No, 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 no. Like, the problem was not information, right? It's something that's there in the heart. So many of us do that same sort of thing with God. We know what we're doing is wrong, but just sort of in our hearts, we say to ourselves, no, 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 no. But I'm just going to keep on doing what I want. Until we see our sin for what it is. Until it's no longer just about, oh, I, don't, I, I can keep going this way and as long as my conscience doesn't feel bad. Until we get to the point where it's like, no, this is what it's doing to my relationship with God. This is what it's doing to God's heart. You know, we're we're, we're going to be in trouble. Martin Luther said that the recognition of sin is the beginning of salvation. And I think that's right. If we're going to be wholehearted followers of Jesus... We have to acknowledge our sin and recognize what it's doing to our relationship with God and that we need a savior and and that we can experience salvation. So the first step is to acknowledge our sin. The second step is to see our sin with new eyes. See our sin with new eyes. Now, here's the thing. We have a tendency to justify our sin by comparing ourselves to other people. And Jesus knew this tendency that we had, which is why in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, he said, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Instead of focusing on the sins of others. And, 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 and perhaps getting self-righteous about how bad they're being. Or perhaps feeling good about ourselves because we're comparing our relative sin to their relative amount of sin. No, we have to take, come to see our sin with new eyes and recognize that our sins hurt other people. They hurt God. And the truth is, they hurt us, right? That's just the reality, When we do things that are not according to God's standard, he's the creator. He did not create these rules. Pastor Chris was talking about this last week. He didn't create these rules to like crimp your style and to keep you from having fun. He created these rules because he loves you and he wants what's best for you. All right, so that's the first two steps. Acknowledge our sin and see our sin with new eyes. And then that leads us into the third step, which is to feel the pain of the victim. When we recognize that our sin hurts others and it hurts God and it hurts us, we, we can begin to, to think about, man, that's not good. We begin to feel some godly conviction. Godly sorrow isn't that we wallow in self-pity, thinking about how bad of a person we are, but it does mean that we take seriously the hurt that we caused As we enter into another person's pain, we are able to grieve the results of our sin. We don't try to justify it. We just recognize, this is about more than just my conscience feeling bad or it being kind of awkward between me and the person I sinned against. It's like, no, I, I wronged them. I've hurt them. And as I begin to think about that, hopefully I'm gonna gain some motivation to make a real confession that will lead to real change. 
Because here's the thing about repentance. Repentance isn't just, hey, I was going this way and it was sinful, and now I'm going to stop doing what I was doing before. I'll just no longer go this direction. No, repentance says, I'm going to now walk in paths of righteousness. I was going one way, but now I'm going to pivot. I'm going to do a 180, and I'm going to start walking in the ways that God has asked me to walk. When we begin to, to feel the pain of our victims, and we have a, a motivation to make a real confession, we begin to see, look, It isn't just that I hurt the other person and I need to ask them for forgiveness. The truth is, I've hurt God's heart and I need to ask him for forgiveness. I need to make a confession. I need to repent. And next month, we're going to be celebrating Good Friday. And this is a great reminder of what our sin, what our uh, disobedience has cost God. The Son of God was put on the cross because of us. When we celebrate Good Friday, we're celebrating an event that happened almost 2,000 years ago. But the truth is, no matter how long ago it was, if we think about what really happened at the crucifixion, what put Jesus on that cross, it wasn't just the people who were living in his time, in his era of history. It, it was us. It was us. We did it. Our sin put him on the cross. That should motivate us. To make a change. And that's the fourth step. To promise to make a change. To repent. I, I talked about this earlier. It, it's not just stopping what we're doing that's wrong. I'm not going to tell lies anymore. right? Now I'm going to tell the truth. right? I'm going to make a change. I'm not going to just stop being. I'm not just going to stop being disrespectful. I'm going to be respectful and honorable in the way that I treat other people. God is interested in so much more through confession than us to just, you know, feel bad about what we did. Like, it, the, the goal of confession isn't to just illustrate how big the gap is between my level of holiness and God's level of holiness. Real confession leads to real change. And our Heavenly Father wants us to change. But of course, we must acknowledge that since it has taken us a lifetime to accumulate all of our sinful habits, we're not going to necessarily change overnight. Like, we can get down on our knees and confess our sins and ask for forgiveness and totally mean it, making a real and sincere confession. But while God does sometimes just, like, deliver us from certain sinful habits, that isn't always how he works. And so as we're still struggling with things that we felt like we genuinely tried to confess before the Lord, it can lead us to this place where we can, again, we can just wallow in self-pity and just feel like, I'm so bad. I'm so worthless. I just, Lord, forgive me. And we just begin to feel defeated and demoralized. We're not changing as fast as we wish we could, as much as fast as we know we should. And in those moments, that's what leads us to the fifth and what I think is the last step in a genuine, sincere, real confession. And that is to accept God's grace and receive his forgiveness. John Calvin once wrote, the goal of confession is consolation, not condemnation. The goal of confession is consolation, God's consolation, not God's condemnation. And this is important to remember because, again, we don't confess our sins just to remind ourselves of how bad we are. We confess our sins because we want to remember how good God is. In a few moments, or sorry, in a few minutes, you're going to have an opportunity to actually confess your sins to God. And as you confess your sins to God, I think it's important that you visualize 
who you're confessing your sins to. Like when I talk about God, who is it that comes to your mind? I think some of us have this mental image of a God who kind of looks maybe like Zeus, you know, in mythology. He's this angry old man. His arms are crossed. And as we confess our sins, there's this sense of like, again? Man, I am so disappointed in you. You keep doing this over and over and over. Do you even mean it? You are such a screw up. Why are you such a failure? You know what my son did for you and like you can't get it together? Is that the mental image that you have when you confess your sin, that that's how God feels about you and your confession? I don't want that to be the image that you have in your mind. Instead, I think a much more helpful image to have in your mind is that of the prodigal son and his father. The prodigal son rejected his father, disrespected his father, went and lived a wild and sinful life. But then the Bible says he came to his senses. There's there's a repentance in that. And he turns and he heads for home. And before he's even able to say the words of confession to his father, his father has been looking for him in the distance. And he runs to his son with open arms and hugs him, affirming him, not just between him, the two of them. He's affirming him in such a way that everyone in the father's household knows, I love my son. Our relationship has been restored. Our heavenly father loves us. He loves me. He loves you. I was trying to think of how to illustrate this. And I was thinking, I get my little girl, Lottie. Come here, baby. (laughs) Today is Lottie's birthday. She's two years old. And I was, I'm so glad that she came to run to me. Would have been a little difficult. That's why mommy didn't bring her out. (laughs) But here's the thing. Even if she hadn't run to me, it wouldn't affect how I feel about her. It wouldn't have been like, you embarrassed me. You made me look bad. You mess stuff up all the time. Why do you draw on the walls? Why do you break things? If you do that again, you're out. Like, no, that's not going to happen. She's my daughter, and she will always be my daughter. I'm always going to love her. Now, as she gets older, she can choose to reject me. She could choose to run away and it would break my heart, but I'm not going to stop loving her and she won't stop being my daughter. It will affect my relationship with her. Her choices will affect my relationship with her if she goes to live in a distant land, to be away from me. But it's not going to change how I feel about her. And in the same way, your heavenly father Look, I don't know what your earthly father was like, but I know what your heavenly father thinks about you, and he loves you. You might make decisions that cause there to be a gap in your relationship with him. There might be a distance that opens up, and our God is going to respect those choices that you make, but he will always love you. You were made in his image, and he will always treasure you as his son, as his daughter. Do you like that, Lottie? Is that good? <laughs> you see yourself up there? All right, go see Miss Grace. All right. Oh, no, we don't want to do this? Okay. It makes me, 
No. Here's the thing. When you make a confession, your father in heaven is excited that you want to be closer to him because he wants what's best for you. Again, I don't know what your relationship was like with your earthly dad, but your heavenly father, he loved you so much that he sent his son, Jesus, and Jesus went to the cross because your heavenly father didn't want to spend eternity without you. So when you make that confession, it isn't as if God has just got his arms crossed and can't stand it. His arms are open wide because he's a good, good father and he loves you. As we come to the end of the service, I want to give you an opportunity to take some time to confess your sins before God. That's what this card that we passed out when you came in is all about. I want to do something that I hope will be meaningful for you. It was something that seemed really powerful in the first service. With this card, and if you're watching online, um, it's just a regular card. It just has the word abide on it. So you can just get out a piece of paper, take out a pen and a pencil. And what we're going to do is based on a story that I read from Richard Foster. He's a pastor that I really admire. And he talks about that in his life, in his ministry, he just felt like he was feeling a, a sense of that he was not measuring up to what God wanted to achieve in his life and through his ministry. And so he was just praying and seeking God, and he felt like what God told him was that he needed to confess his sins. And this confused Richard because he was like, I, I've been doing that. But then he, he felt like God was telling him, you need to confess your sins to another person. And he was initially a little bit reluctant, but he said, okay, God, I'll do that. So he called a friend and he said, hey, can we get together in about a week? And he explained to him, hey, I'm going to confess these sins to you. And uh, I just feel like that's what God wants me to do. And his friend said, okay. And so then Richard got out paper and he made a list. He tried to be very thorough. He divided it into his childhood, adolescence, adulthood. And he just wrote down any sins that he could think of. He wrote them all down. And he said, as I was looking at my, my list, there, there was this sense of sort of shame and a little bit of dread. I was going to tell somebody some of these dark secrets about myself. Well, the time came for the meeting. And Richard said that as I was with my friend, I, I had to tell him, I, I said, I really... I, I need you to not say anything when I'm going through this list. I feel kind of a sense of emotion about this. So unless you need some clarification about what I mean by a particular sin, if you could just let me kind of go through the list. And his friend said he understood. And so Richard began the process and he just started telling him, this is what I've done. And he said that when he got to the end of his list, he, he put the list down and he just had this sense of, oh, I feel such shame, embarrassment. I, it just, he felt awful kind of wondering why he did this. And so he didn't know what to do. He, he picked up his list and was going to put it back in his briefcase. And that's when his friend said, wait. He said, give that to me. And so he took the list from Richard Foster and then he just tore it up. And he threw it into the trash can. And Richard said that in that moment, I was just overwhelmed by this feeling of breakthrough that, that God did love me and that I was forgiven. Psalm 103 says, as far as is the 
as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And Richard said that in that moment, that, that's how I felt. When I read that story, I thought, I want us as a church family to sort of be able to experience the power of a moment like that in our lives. But here's the thing. I, I know that it would be kind of awkward, especially unexpected for me to just say, hey, just turn to the person next to you and just like tell them all the stuff you did. Like that would be, that would be difficult. So instead, we're going to do this. On that card that you were given when you came in, I want to encourage you to just start writing out any sins that you can think of. Bryson and Michelle are going to come out and they're going to sing a song uh, from Zach Williams called To the Table about coming into the presence of our, our Father. And as they sing, I just want to encourage you, you know, just write down anything that comes to your mind that, that you know is causing there to be a gap in your relationship with God. Now, I know, again, because people are around, you might be embarrassed, it might be a little awkward, and you can just write down in code, if you, you want to, what it is that, that it, you, you did. And I know God will be able to interpret your code. Because remember, I mean, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God already knows. We're just acknowledging what he already knows. Then what's going to happen is, as they sing over us, we have some people uh, in our congregation who are going to stand at these trash cans, their staff members, their elders, their church leaders. And as they stand at these trash cans, when, when, when you're done with your list, again, it's not going to be exhaustive and we don't expect it to be. I want you to come down to these trash cans and I want you to hand them your card. And I promise they're not going to read your card. They're not going to look at it and be like, there's a lot of writing on this card. No, they're just going to take it and they're going to tear it up and they're going to throw it in the trash can. And as you see them tear that up, in first service, there was something powerful just about hearing the cards being torn up. As, as you see and you hear those cards being torn up, it's my desire that you will come to realize just how real it is that God wants to forgive you of your sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And if you feel like maybe I'm not worthy or like I'm not good enough to do this, I just, maybe it's not a complete confession. Maybe you've confessed some of this stuff in the past. Just remember this. This is another quote from Tim Keller that I just love. God doesn't forgive us on the basis of the purity of our confession. He forgives us on the basis of the purity of Jesus. And that's good news. All right. Let's, let's do this because real confession leads to real change. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love for you to join us at one of our weekend worship services. For service times and information about BRCC, be sure to check out brookvillroad.cc. God bless you.